Welcome to Earthshot Now, a podcast that is part of the nonprofit Earthshot, where we are inspiring people to take climate action through a positive vision of the future using cool, clean tech. The podcast is about people, places, tech, and climate change. I'm your host, Mark Bernstein. On our shows, I talk with people from different walks of life. We talk about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what climate change means to them. Everyone has a story to tell, and everyone's perspective on climate change is different as well. It doesn't matter whether their work has direct impact on the climate, or the changing climate will directly impact what they do, or maybe they just have a passion for inspiring others to take action. We all have a role to play. Before we go to our guest, it's time for a short segment I call Clean Tech is Cool. We spent decades trying to motivate people to take action on climate change. And yes, 20 years ago, clean tech was expensive and didn't always work too well. But that has changed. Clean tech is cheaper and better, and it is so cool. Today, it's regenerative agriculture. You as farmers and farmers around the world are in trouble. Last year, more than half the farmers in the U.S. lost money. That is despite heavy subsidies. This is because food prices are low and input costs are high. At the same time, agricultural activities are coming under increasing scrutiny for their impacts on the environment. Chemical runoff is polluting our waterways and greenhouse gas emissions from synthetic fertilizers and poor soil management practices are increasing dramatically. Meanwhile, consumer awareness and demand for healthier and more environmentally beneficial foods have exploded with growth exceeding supply. This has created a unique opportunity for farmers interested in improving their environmental footprint to also capture substantial market premiums for their differentiated crops. And historically, farmers look to innovations in technology to overcome their problems, like new equipment, think about tractors, new seeds, and chemicals. But today's problems need more than that. Some farmers have already begun to adopt practices that could deliver better economics as well as better health and environmental outcomes. These farmers became increasingly focused on managing the health of their soil and soon found that by doing so, they were improving yield, resiliency, and profits, reducing costs, using less chemicals and water, building soil carbon, and reducing carbon emissions. But so far, this has been a very small group of farmers. We know that plants absorb carbon dioxide and soils can hold huge stores of carbon. Plants can decay in the soil, continuing to build up carbon in the soil and microbes in the soil can even suck carbon from the air. While most of today's agricultural practices are carbon sources, which means they put out more carbon than they absorb, they can easily be what we call carbon sinks, which means they can take in more carbon than they release this would be, have a big impact on our net greenhouse gas emissions. The practice that they are using to deliver these results generally referred to as regenerative farming practices. While there are many that are decidedly low-tech, like growing cover crops between harvests, changing the rotation of crops, and growing things like peas that return nutrients to the soil, farmers are also using new tech to make it more efficient. And a big piece of that is data and artificial intelligence. A recent relationship between Microsoft and Land O'Lakes 
is using the Land O'Lakes AgTech software portfolio developed to manage sustainability programs. These apps will become, become part of Microsoft's burgeoning cloud surface focused on agriculture. One of those is Truterra, a platform developed to manage sustainability programs such as no-till cultivation, precision nutrient management, and cover cropping. Microsoft and Land O'Lakes plan to create a cloud service that combines data with artificial intelligence and other data streams, such as weather forecasts, to suggest better management practices. One company that's already gathering this sort of insight is the US division of Tate & Lyle, the 160-year-old UK food and beverage ingredients company. Tate & Lyle began enrolling corn suppliers in a sustainability program focused on emissions reductions, soil wellness, and water conservation using Truterra. The company has gathered some compelling insights from the 148,000 acres it has been tracking since 2018. They found that farmers had a 10% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, a 30% increase in nitrogen efficiency, which means they're using less nitrogen fertilizer, a 6% reduction in topsoil erosion, and a 4% improvement in what they call the soil conditioning index, which is an indicator of how well soil can absorb carbon dioxide. Data, AI, and other tech tools are becoming the new clean tech for farmers. And that is cool. So talking about Tate Lyle, a UK company, brings me to our guest for today, Charlie Courtney. Charlie is a member of the House of Lords in the UK, a lawyer who works on intellectual property issues, and recently with his colleagues looking at opportunities for regenerative agriculture in the UK. Charlie, welcome to Earthshot Now. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to join you and I uh, very much enjoyed that fascinating introduction um, and understanding all the sort of technological uh, developments that, uh, that you guys are focusing upon. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to have you here too. Well, since our audience is primarily from the US and you are the 19th Earl of Devon, can you tell us what that means? Yes, it's a, a slightly complicated and, and long story, but it's a, uh, it's a medieval aristocratic title that my family has held since uh, it was first granted to us by um, uh, King Edward II in 1335. Um, and uh, we, we are a, um, a landing owning family in Devon. Um, and uh, we just happen to have survived um, uh, in the county um, farming land and uh, uh, operating um, a family business effectively um, over the last seven or 800 years. Um, and to this day, um, I am a farmer. Uh, I live um, at Powderham Castle in Devon and we farm uh, the fields around about us, a mixed farm of um, uh, arable, uh, pasture, forestry, etc. Um, and so my interest in this topic uh, comes very much from being a, a farmer with long-term interest in the health and well-being of our countryside. So from our, our US audience, you basically like Downton Abbey. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, the long that, that line is, down... That, that is uh, that is one way of putting it, and uh, and it is similar to Downton Abbey, but it's um you know it's a very hardworking um business. It it uh, it actually covers a lot of ground. There's lots of um, uh, visitor business, there's lots of heritage business, um, and there's lots of land management business, and it's a fascinating combination of them. Um, and what I find particularly interesting is 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 land tenure over many many generations and many many centuries. You understand 
and you learn how the land works and the landscape around us on the edge of uh, the River X, just south of Exeter, um, is a very ancient land that's been used in many, many different ways over different generations and is, is very much engineered by mankind. Um, and so understanding the interventions of man over all of that time, the remarkable successes of, of, of feeding people um, and developing ways of, of, of husbanding uh, beef and sheep and, uh, and wheat, barley and oats, which are the, the principal uh, produce that, that we um, supply, um, is really interesting. And, and just recently, we discovered some Roman ruins at Powdrum, uh, approximately uh, sort of 1500 years old. Um, and in learning more about how Romans might have uh, occupied the space, and it's a farm um, farmstead ruin uh, near the site of the castle, uh, I, I learned that um, that what they were eating uh, in Roman Britain that long ago was uh, was beef and lamb and wheat and oats and barley, um, and so you know over um, almost two thousand years we're, we're effectively uh, farming and eating similar stuff. Um, uh, in, in similar ways. So it, it is that continuity of, of, of sort of heritage land management is, is fascinating in this environmental debate. Well, that's pretty cool. And, and let's come back to that in a minute because I want a little bit of your backstory. And mm-hmm. we'll delve more because you've now opened up a whole bunch of questions and none of what you just said for what I want to ask. And we may not be able to get all those answers, but there are a couple of things I want to, so people understand sort of who you are even as you're getting in, in, into these more details. So one of the things is you're a member of the House of Lords. Uh, and can you explain how that differs from say being a Senator or Congressperson in the US? Yeah, um, so in the UK, we have a bicameral system similar to yours. Ours are called the House of Commons and House of Lords. The House of Lords being the upper revising body. Um, the House of Commons are the members of parliament democratically elected um, by elections every five years. The House of Lords traditionally obviously in medieval times when the Earl of Devon first took his seat, um, were the lords of the land, the earls, the dukes, um, the marquises and, and the barons. Um, and over time, uh, that's morphed, obviously, and largely the House of Lords is now made up of life-appointed peers, people who are appointed to a life peerage and they sit um, uh, and, until they retire um, uh, or they die. Um, however, within the House of Lords, there remain 92 hereditary peers. Um, and in order to obtain a hereditary seat, uh, you stand for election. Um, and in order to stand for election, you obviously need to have inherited an, a hereditary title. So it, it, it's a slightly strange process. We're the only democratically elected people within the Lords, but it's a very small group of candidates typically, um, and the electorate's very small. Um, and so I sit in the Lords as a crossbench peer which means I'm not party affiliated. I sit on the crossbenches between the Conservatives, the Labour and the Liberal Democrats. Um, and there's a large group of crossbench peers, um, almost up to a third of the House. Um, and they're the sort of independent minded folks. And, and I'm there really as the champion of the county, Devon, in which I live, um, which is an old rural um, and, uh, and, 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 and very beautiful county in the southwest of England. And so what does the House of Lords do? I mean, is it like, does legislation have to come from the House of Commons to the House of Lords and get approved, vice versa? Yes. Or... Legislation has to pass, pass both houses and be signed by the monarch, the Queen, in order to be valid legislation. So we, um, uh, House of Lords, you can introduce legislation, 
the majority of the government's legislation is introduced in the House of Commons, but it has to pass both houses. Uh, the House of Lords can hold up legislation um, and frustrate the, the government's legislative agenda, um, and often does, but, but more typically it, um, it amends legislation. There tends to be more subject matter expertise in the House of Lords than, than typically you find within the democratically elected House of Commons. Um, and so you get remarkable specialists and, and you know, th there's this tradition of the House of Lords being elderly and, and folks um, with grey hair. And that is true. Um, but with that comes incredible wisdom. Um, we, we had um, debates, obviously, last year around Brexit and, and, and um, all sorts of constitutional wrangles. And um, I, I was sat in the meeting at the back of which voice piped up saying, it wasn't as bad as this during the Suez crisis. And, and this was a gentleman in his 90s who, who, who you know, had been present during the 1950s Suez crisis and, and was, was very familiar with how these things work. And that, that sort of wisdom um, sits within the House of Lords. And my role, as I see it as a hereditary peer, is also to carry some of that wisdom of, of the centuries and, and to be able to provide a bit of context um, for what we're seeing now. So, and one last question on this. So we see lots of clips, news clips of the House of Commons and the prime minister there and everybody's yelling at the same time and you know, all that stuff. Does that also happen in the House of Lords or is it more sedate and calm like in the US at some level? Yes, it's, it's, it's somewhat genteel in the House of Lords. Um, that, that there are two channels of parliamentary TV. There's the House of Commons and the House of Lords. And you can always switch over for a slightly more uh, sedate. We are, we are a self-regulated body. So um, the members regulate themselves. You don't have the speaker um, shouting orders and giving people time. And um, so the rules are very much um, driven by the members. And it's got more heated in recent years. It certainly has become a more politicized body than traditionally it was. Um, but debate tends to be more considered and courteous um, albeit there are some very, very passionate people, obviously, in the Lords on, on, on all sides of many issues. Um, and this is one of them. Um, you know, climate change and the environment is, is front and centre of our legislative agenda over the, the coming months with the Environment Bill um, and COP26 and with the government that's really taking this issue very, very seriously. Now, one last thing on your background. You are an intellectual property lawyer. Correct. Um, so was there any particular reason or it just happened. And then if you can give an example of one strange or odd IP case you were on, if you're allowed to, whatever. Right. Interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm an IP lawyer largely because I, I'm a California lawyer. Um, I, um, I, I, I left England for, um, in, in 2003, uh, having met a, a, a nice young lady in a bar in Las Vegas um, and, and having qualified as a junior barrister in London, practicing real property, landlord, tenant, uh, land ownership and such, um, I moved to California and I wanted to practice an area of law that would be easily transferable. And obviously real property doesn't transfer quite as easily as some things. <laughs> um, and so I, I was working at a firm called Latham & Watkins, which will be uh, familiar to many of, of your listeners, I'm sure, a, a, a large US firm. Um, and they had a burgeoning have a, a, a remarkable intellectual property practice. And, and I developed it there. And, and one of the interesting elements of my practice is as a real property lawyer who actually um, qualified or, or studied history of art and theology, I don't have that that depth of technological background that many IP lawyers do, but I am an advocate and I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer. Um, and, and the aim was to see if we could um, make a trial lawyer into an IP lawyer rather than making a scientist into a trial lawyer. Um, 
and and it's worked really well and I, i've been fascinated by it um a lot of my work in in california was was in uh, computer software um work for, for for apple and a, a number of other large um firms um and did some interesting um cases in sort of eastern district of texas etc um and i was just thinking through a list but i've i've, I've sort of argued over ownership of um ancient greek uh, marbles um and i <laughs> i considered ownership of uh, of cryptocurrency um and the bitcoin white paper so um the, the sort of ip that i've considered is fairly broad um i've worked with a uh, a fascinating um uh, economist who recently received um, the nobel prize for for auction design technology um and and looking at, at that kind of technology was was, was fascinating um and then from an environmental perspective, and not so much in the IP space, um, but almost the first case I worked on when I arrived at Latham Watkins as a, as a keen young um, lawyer was, um, was the Aaron Brockovich case. So I've done some environmental work, um, and that was the time that uh, it was long after the movie had come out, but, uh, but there were still remnants of that. And it was uh, you know, fascinating for me to understand how the US addresses its environmental regulation by a plaintiff's lawyer. Um, oh, that's which is pretty different. cool. Yeah, we, well, I actually yeah. know Aaron. We worked right. on a little project together, and and I, we arrived. We were doing something in Honduras long before things got bad in Honduras, and then we arrived sort of on the same plane. I was in the back; she was in the front, of course. Um, yeah. But then I got a ride home in her limo, so it was kind of kind of. That's good. She's, yeah, she's no, a really and, cool and she, she, she she is a she is a um, you know such a fount of energy, and 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 has driven a really fascinating. Um, uh, sort of development um, and for, from a UK lawyer's perspective where we didn't have um, you know we increasingly are but we didn't really have class actions and group action litigation of the same sort to see how it works here was was fascinating and it, it is the way the US seeks to have this deregulated approach and leave it up to um, to, to the, the legal system um, effectively to regulate big industry in some ways and that's a good thing and a bad thing and obviously there are plenty of arguments on both sides. <laughs> And that's a story for another day. So let's go yeah. back to agriculture now. Um, so it's really fascinating. Um, and talk a little bit about now sort of, you know, you're beginning to look at regenerative practices and, and so what is it that you're trying to develop in, in the land you're doing and then you know, how you can broaden it out into the overview UK? Yeah, it's... Um... You know, UK agriculture is is hugely um, changing at present. We've been in the common agricultural uh, policy and, uh, as members of, of the European Union um, for, for 40 or more years now. Um, and having just left the European Union, it's the first time in a generation or more that we've been able to legislate for our own um, agriculture. Um, and last summer, Parliament passed the Agriculture Act, um, and that introduces a whole new means of subsidising um, or supporting agriculture. Um, and rather than the common agricultural policy that, that paid farmers a certain amount of money per acre of land that they own or farm, um, this is now focused upon paying public money for public good. And farmers and land managers will be expected to deliver certain public goods in return for payments um, directed to the encouragement of those goods. And therefore, all farmers in the UK now are looking at what they're doing and trying to understand, okay, you know, where, where, where are the public goods that I'm delivering? What more can I deliver? Um, and at Powdrum, we've always farmed, as, as I explained, a, a relatively mixed farm that's been sort of 
relatively um, sympathetic to the environment. We have we have lots of rough areas and, and we're, as I say, down by the river. So there's lots of wetland as well. Um, but really trying to understand um, and, and audit the natural capital on the farm is, um, is, is where most farmers and land managers now are. What do we own? What do we have? What services are we providing? And the difficulty we currently have is we've introduced this system, uh, a framework bill, um, but the devil is in the detail. What should we measure? Um, and, and I think uh, lots of land managers are in the, the same position. Of, there are lots of mechanisms out there. There are lots of theories as to what um, the economics of biodiversity are, um, what the economics of carbon are. Um, but until someone plumps for it, it um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be spending money auditing things that may not be relevant. Um, so over the years, uh, you know, in the, in the past, did farmers use more and more fertilizer and, and pesticides and herbicides to yes. yield on uh, the uh, land? And yeah, U UK farming is, has probably been through a very similar cycle to, to US farming. Um, you know, during the, 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 the sort of period post-war, there were lots of fears around food security, obviously. Um, the war itself meant that lots more land came under cultivation. Um, and then a, a sort of greater intensification of, of that process as, as, as populations have grown um, and farmers have been funded to, uh, to feed them. Um, and we saw, obviously, during the 60s and 70s and 80s, money being paid to farmers to rip up old hedgerows, create bigger fields for um, greater production of, of, of typically cereals. Um, and then during the 80s, 90s, um, under the European scheme, we had these mountains of excess produce because um, the way that the common agriculture policy was funding was, was, was encouraging an excess in production. Um, and that's all gently sort of changed and adjusted. And now with um, countryside stewardship and other slightly more um, environmental schemes having been introduced over the last 20 years, you're seeing farmers actually making quite a difference environmentally on their farms. Um, but now the whole funding scheme is changing towards these environmental outcomes. Um, and that's going to change things considerably. And, and some farmers are going to be upping intensification of production because they're losing their basic payments um, and they can't claim any environmental payments. And others may be, you know, giving up farming altogether and, and, there will be any sort of difference in between. So it's a very febrile time for British agriculture. Um, lots of interesting developments coming out of it, and lots of different interesting technology coming out of it as well. On your land specifically, did you find in the past runoff into the river? Because you're right by the river. So was there nutrient runoff, chemical runoff, polluting the river? Or was it yes. getting sort of held up through other things? Yeah. Yeah, no. So, so Powdrum is, is um, if any of your, your um, listeners know, um, Devon, it's this very red sandstone soil. It's very distinctive, um, absolutely beautiful, um, but it's very sandy um, and it does run off. And I remember clearly in my youth, um, uh, big craters um, or, or, or sort of canyons appearing in the fields, one big enough that you could fit a combine in, a sort of terrifying amount of runoff. And, and, and this was, you know, as I say, the time 70s into the 80s, um, when it was all about production um, and technology in, enabled you to, to increase yield and such. Um, and that's what the market and the system required you to do. Um, for the last 
15, 20 years, we've been adding organic matter regularly to our field. So we have a relationship with the local council um, whereby the, all the garden waste from, from local homes gets, uh, gets spun up and, and, and dumped into large um, silos of, of uh, organic matter that then decompose and get spread across the farm. So we've got about 15 years of, of organic matter sort of build up um, and we're, we're, we're seeking to farm with minimum tillage technologies as well. So we're really barely breaking the soil more than is absolutely necessary, which is vastly different from the big old plows that you used to see. Um, and it's really interesting to just learn to farm to your landscape. Um, and that's where this idea of heritage and how has this land been used over uh, a long period of time um, really comes in. Uh, management of water um, and abstraction of water and such is another really interesting thing. There are so many ancient sort of water mills up and down the rivers that are now obsolete um but you think two three hundred years ago those were running four or five different industries um so there's a lot to learn are um so do you have farmers in your land that are multi-generational farmers yes so um i mean obviously we've been farming our, our area for a long time but but tenant farmers typically estate have a number of tenant farmers and that's very much a UK model um, and the Mortimer family have been farming powder um, for six or seven generations so that's you know three four hundred years of, of, of sort of interface between them um, uh, between two families and and, um, and and they're great friends of ours and, and it's they actually farm um, the most fascinating bit of the estate which is the the Exminster powder marshes which is an ancient marshland um, that was recovered and Brunel built his great railway across it during the 1840s um, and it was a site of the civil war and there's a wonderful old church down there now is a triple uh, si ramsar protected bird sanctuary as well so it, it sort of has all these layers of um, of history and uh, and biodiversity to it um, that I'm you know constantly trying to learn more about that's pretty neat. Um, actually, the U.S. is turning more and more into tenant farming as other people buy up land and farmers basically have to lease the land to farm. And yeah, it, it it, may, it's, a, it's a very long a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a very long standing thing in the U.K. and it's something we're very comfortable with. But as, as, as we're transitioning from being farmers to environmental land managers, it throws up lots of in interesting issues for a landlord and tenant relationship. And, and it's something we're working to try and understand. Where, where do the payments go? Who takes the benefit of conservation covenants, et cetera? Um, and that can be challenging. And the difference is that you've owned the land for a long time. In our case, we've got um, companies, real estate companies buying land. Yeah. With the purpose of being able to earn large profits on the land um, and then turning, you know, turning them over at some point. And so, you know, there's a little bit different when you expect to hold your land for a long time. Um, yes. Very centuries. How hard is it to, do you see it's going to be to get farmers to modify practice um, to be more regenerative and sustainable? I think if, um, if the marketplace will pay them, then I think farmers will do it. And, and I think it's as simple as that. And obviously the marketplace doesn't pay farmers for what they do. We all know that. It's the same in the UK as it is in the US. We, we, we enjoy the lowest price food in, in, in generations. Um, and we have a, 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 a healthy eating crisis um, uh, in, in both countries. And, um, and it, it's, it's got itself in a muddle because, you know, if farmers were paid um, 
the appropriate cost of, of producing good, healthy food, I think I think they would be happy to do it. Um, the, the real issue, and there's been a fascinating um, report that I would recommend any of your um, uh, listeners to, to, to at least consider the executive summary, if not the whole thing, uh, by Professor Das Gupta into the economics of biodiversity that was commissioned um, last year by um, by the Treasury. Very rare for the Treasury to get this involved in environmental and and. and they're, they're seeking to understand what is the cost of, or what is the value of the natural capital that we consume. Um, and it's never priced into any of our economic models um, and, and, and it's invisible and we consume it until, until we can't, then we'll move on to the next bit of Amazon rainforest or Midwestern prairie or whatever it is. Um, and, um, and, and we just exported it further and further away. Um, and, uh, and trying to price that in so that consumers are aware of what they're consuming when they're consuming something. Um, and, and there's an awful lot of, of, of talk at the moment. Obviously, I, I'm a, a Devon farmer. We have a lot of pasture um, and a lot of very old pasture and, and, and we raise beef and, and sheep. And, and there's an awful lot of issues around the carbon consumption of, of, of those animals, as, as you are probably aware. Um, and they're being compared to soya and vegan and vegetarian alternatives well you know we need to be transparent about what the carbon consumption of, of soya is and and um and certainly soya that's you know produced in in sort of relatively virgin soils that previously have been um forest yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah. and and you know it, it is so complicated it, it's it, it it people need to understand better yes um better information across the board i mean one of the things you'll find though if farmers they do get a higher price for organic produce. They do get a higher price for what's being called sustainable produce um, in places like Whole Foods and other, other things. And, but the farmers need help in the transition because actually when they get to do regenerative agriculture, they find their input costs are lower. So they yeah. do get a high, they, the market is working at some level, except there's this upfront hurdle. And the upfront hurdle is the capital needed to transition. Yeah, farmers don't have the capital. So, you know, so, you know, one of the things that we can start thinking about is how do we create those, those mechanisms to help farmers transition so they can actually take advantage of what the market is actually doing correctly at the moment? Yeah, you're, you're, you're right. And it's, it, it was one of the, um, the real hot button topics as we, as we um, debated the agriculture bill as it was then the agricultural act now is what's going to happen in this, this transition and what does the government expect you know if you're stopping paying people a per acreage sum um and then you're encouraging a different um payment system all that's going to happen is they're going to have less money in their pocket which is less money for buying new equipment that's less money for fixing the drains and 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 building the resilience um and they're going to need only to increase their um their yield in order to make up for that loss which isn't going to do the soils any good um, and, and I don't know yet, I've been asking relatively regularly, as you can tell, I, I pester the government on these <laughs> issues, is, is, you know, what is the impact assessment? And they really haven't done it. So, you know, UK agriculture is, um, uh, for anyone interested, um, is really quite an, a petri dish at the moment of, 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 you know, trial and error. And it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out of it. Um, because also these ELMS schemes, these um, environmental land management schemes are optional, you know, Farmers have to choose them, um, and, uh, and and if they're complicated and they don't necessarily see the benefits, they're not going to be doing it. And so it's it, it's a real challenge for the government. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If we could just go back 
a little bit to your the long history. Mm-hmm. So Romans were farming the same stuff. And, and maybe nobody has really looked yet, but is there information and data going back centuries on the yield um, on these lands? And, you know, and one could see a really interesting project, research project, in which you look at, you go back in time, look at the yields, look at the weather patterns at the time, and, and try to compare what they were seeing then and what we're seeing today to see if we're actually doing any better today. Yeah, that, 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 there is a fair amount of work in that area. And actually, um, Exeter University, we, we, we live near Exeter, and, and they're one of the, the leading universities on, uh, on the environment and on environmental history. Um, and, uh, and we've had some interesting work with them because we have a number of old map books and lots of old deeds and, and records sort of showing what was tenanted and what was grown in what field at, at, at certain periods of time and, and sort of stitching those together to try and get a, a, a better picture um, and, um, and and you know yes obviously yields have vastly improved um, but trying to build that broader picture across large areas of landscape I think is absolutely fascinating um, and, and is not yet a project that's sort of complete but it is always in progress. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. The, the, the other, actually, that, that there is another uh, area of Devon, which is, um, which, which is the North Wyke Farm, farmed by the Rothamsted Research Institute that I may have mentioned to you previously. But, but they're, they're farming some ancient Devon land, but they're doing it in the most sort of intensively monitored and data collected um, way. Um, I, I think it's the most sort of monitored farm in the world in terms of all the data points they collect. Um, and they're, I think, stitching their modern data into the old knowledge of, of what those fields were doing. So there's probably some interesting outputs from that. Oh, that, yeah, that would be pretty cool. I mean, I think there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. And so thanks. This has been really instructive and really interesting because it's, it, you know, the UK agriculture is very different than the US, but I've seen some same patterns. But, I, you know, there are opportunities to learn from each other and, and really to try to make you know, get agriculture to be, you know, a climate solution rather than a climate problem. And, and I encourage you to continue to work on, on those as well. Um, there were two things that I ask every guest um, at the end of the show. Um, one is some fun fact you'd like to share uh, that doesn't have anything to do with climate change, if, you know, it doesn't have to, just some fun fact. And then give us a challenge to the audience, a climate challenge. Um, a fun fact. I think I gave you my fun fact that I met my wife in a bar in Las Vegas. I think that's a, that's as good a fact as I can come up with um, on a rugby tour, no less. So um, uh, a good romantic fun fact. You were um, on a rugby tour. I was on a rugby tour. She 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 is not a rugby player, albeit. Um, but you were a rugby player. I am a rugby player. There's another fun fact. I I, I played rugby. Um, uh, yes, for a number of years, and actually played in California. Played for the Santa Monica Dolphins. Um, which is a great local team. That's a good fun fact. Okay, yeah, about climate and then, challenge. Oh. And then my climate challenge, well, my personal climate challenge is, is to understand, um, is, is to understand the carbon sequestration potentials of intertidal habitat. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not a sort of, it's a challenge that I've set myself because interestingly, Powdrum lies alongside the River X estuary um, and, and has a lot of this mud and, and um, 
and, and shellfish and, and, and some seagrass and other um, uh, areas. And obviously Devon and Cornwall, uh, the southwest peninsula where we're from, ha has vast areas of coastline. And I think it's, it's one of the least understood and possibly one of the highest potential um, carbon sequestration areas um, of landscape. Um, and, and currently it's, it's totally ignored by, um, by our, our, certainly our sort of DEFRA mapping and, and the environmental land management work that we're doing. And I think understanding how intertidal habitat plays, both as a source of, of carbon sequestration, but also as a source of protein um, and farming in and of itself, I think is, is, is my challenge at present. And I'm, I'm hoping to do a study with Exeter University to learn more. I mean, so a broader challenge like that is for, you know, people have areas that are been under-researched is to let's get funding for research in areas to understand better how they interact with the environment. There has been um, a lot of work in wetlands in the U.S., uh, yeah. but mi with mixed results. Mm -hmm. And so be, we do need more information and more results. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. Um, thank you very much for um, spending the time with us today. Mark, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing, because I think it's, uh, it's crucially important. I appreciate that. I also want to thank Dustin Chang for producing our podcast, Nikhil Jane for supporting the development of the podcast, and our listeners for tuning in. Please follow Earthshot on Twitter at EarthshotG and LinkedIn at Earthshot. Let us know about new cool clean tech you've seen that you'd like us to highlight, and feel free to comment and suggest future guests. For everyone at Earthshot and Earthshot Now, thanks for listening, and remember, clean tech is cool. We're done. Oh, brilliant. Um, before we actually hang up, and Dustin, you can stop the recording <laughs> at this point. Thank you, Dustin. There.